please be seated. Psalm 70 this evening, our journey through the Scriptures from Genesis to Revelation on Sunday night. If you're with us tonight and you don't have a Bible, there are men coming up the aisles right now with Bibles, and you just raise your hand and get their attention, and they'll get a Bible into your hands. And then it's a lot easier to follow, especially on the Sunday nights, always, but especially on the Sunday nights, to follow what's going on if we're able to listen and to also read it with our own eyes. And then if you don't own a Bible, please make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you this evening. So Psalm 70, we remember that the book of Psalms is the Jewish hymnal. It was their kind of song book. We don't really have hymnals. We have an overhead. But a lot of you remember, you know, the hymnals that were in the pews and that kind of thing. And that goes on, of course, uh, even today. I'm not saying that that's gone and passed uh, away. But here's this book made up of 150 songs that were written to the Lord, worship songs that were birthed out of every conceivable experience and trial and mountaintop experience that a person could experience as a child of God in this life. And then not all of us have the ability to uh, put something to song or to our put into words what we're feeling toward the Lord. And so we trust people that can write songs. And, of course, the psalms are written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to put into song what we want to sing to the Lord, and then we get to sing that and our heart is blessed. And so these psalms coming out of so many different uh, places that people were in life and expressing a heart toward God in every conceivable uh, circumstance. And so that's what makes each of the psalms so different is that they do come out of these uh, different uh, seasons that, and circumstances that we find in life. And I always like to be reminded in the psalms that it always teaches us. The book of Psalms is a great testimony to the fact that there is a song of worship to be sung to God in every circumstance in life. There's always a reason to worship Him. So Psalm 70 is a, another psalm for the impatient. So none of you know anything about that. I entitled this one, Hurry, O God, Please! And that's kind of what he's saying in verse 1. Make haste, O God, to deliver me. Now, Psalm 70 is a very short psalm because David, who writes it, is in a hurry. And, uh, and he's in a desperate situation, and he feels that he's got to get this song sung to the Lord in, uh, in quick fashion so that the Lord can move on quickly to answering his plea that God would deliver him from whatever circumstance he's in the middle of here and to do it quickly. And so short psalms are okay. Short prayers are okay. Remember Peter when he was walking on water for a moment or two, and then he put his eyes on the waves, took his eyes off of the Lord, he began to sink. And when he did, he cried out, Help me, Lord. One of the shortest prayers in the Bible, probably the shortest prayer in the Bible. And the Lord said to Peter, You call that a prayer? I didn't hear a thee or a thou in the whole thing. What are you talking? Think I'm going to listen to that? I only listened to old King James. And, uh, but he didn't. The Lord hears a short prayer, and the Lord uh, hears a short psalm as well. So he cries out, 
make haste. He feels desperate. He's in some kind of a situation that he doesn't feel like he's going to survive unless God moves quickly. He said, let them be ashamed and confounded who seek my life. Oh, now we see why he's in such a hurry. His life is being threatened by the wicked, and so he calls on the Lord to judge those that were seeking his life. Let them be turned back and confused to desire my hurt. Let them be turned back because of their shame who say, aha, aha. Let all those who seek you rejoice and be glad in you, and let those who love your salvation say continually, let God be magnified. And so, Lord, I'm asking you to deliver me from this circumstance so that when you do and the righteous see you do that, it will be an encouragement to their faith uh, that you do take care uh, of the righteous. But I am poor and needy. Make haste to me, O God. You are my help and my deliverer. We sang tonight that song, Alone, the Lord alone is our hope and our deliverer. David makes the same statement here. You are my help, you alone, and my deliverer. O Lord, do not delay. And so this final cry for deliverance. Now, most of us have experienced exactly the emotion and everything. I mean, we read this psalm and we can pull some circumstance out of our life. Some of you are living it even right now tonight, some circumstance in our life where uh, we are feeling what David was feeling in the psalm, and uh, that is that God is, we're desperate for the Lord to deliver us from some kind of a hardship immediately. And all of us hits that sooner or later in our Christian life, and we certainly do uh, more than once. And it's always uh, good to ask the Lord for deliverance when we find ourselves in that kind of a problem. God, just deliver me out of that, this, and just beat up my enemies and get me out of here as quick as, as possible. So it's great to pray that, as the psalmist does here. But sometimes we discover that God is in, uh, in quite the same hurry that we're in to be delivered out of the difficulty that we're in. That makes us even more anxious. When we realize I'm anxious about the circumstance, then I become doubly anxious because God doesn't seem to be as anxious as I am. Because if he was remotely, as remotely as anxious as I am, he would have had me pulled out of this uh, by now. But the fact of the matter is, is that God is never late. It sure can feel like it, though, at times in our lives. And I think the Lord's best answer, at least one of his best answers to Psalm 70 would come through the prophet Isaiah some years later in Isaiah chapter 55. Let me read a very, very famous a couple of verses to you. The Lord spoke through Isaiah and said, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. They're not? No. <laughs> oh, that's a revelation. For as the heavens are high, higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. I have never read that passage or had that passage read to me in the course of my Christian life in that it wasn't a great benefit to me in returning a proper perspective 
especially when I'm in the middle of something that I'm anxious about and God doesn't seem to be moving as quickly as I think he should. I think that when we ask for deliverance, but the Lord doesn't come do it immediately, then Isaiah, in another part of Isaiah, God speaking through Isaiah, he lets us know that when God doesn't deliver us immediately, it only means that God is up to something better. Isaiah chapter 30, verse 18, Therefore the Lord will wait, oh, that he may be gracious to you. Oh. And therefore he will be exalted that he may have mercy on you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. When the Lord waits to deliver us from a situation where we know that he is going to deliver us in the light of his word, we can know that if he does delay, it's only in order to do something even better. You say, how could he do anything better than what I'm thinking right now would be the best thing for him to do? There are better things. And I think all of us, I'd say most of us certainly in this room, certainly all of us have walked with the Lord for a while. We have discovered that when God does wait to deliver us from something and we kind of fight all the way through it and then we see the higher thing that he was doing, then we realize that was worth the wait. You were up to something way better than what I was thinking of and your plan was a much better plan than my plan. God is never late in any situation in our life. Some of you might just need to say that to your own heart. God is not late in my situation. And he's not late. And you'll see as time goes on that he's up to something that's bigger than just your immediate circumstance. He's knocking out a lot of great things and you'll be thankful for his delay. Now, the Bible says that God works all things together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purposes. And we always want to remember, that's one of the most famous verses in the Bible, Romans chapter 8, verse 28. But we always want to realize that the definition of good is then defined when you go into verse 29, where it talks about us being conformed into the image of Christ. So often I think my best is in the best that God can do in a circumstance. The, the greatest impact is going to be that I end up with a little more money than I had before. Uh, I'm a little uh, healthier than I was before this. It's almost always in some kind of a physical realm that I get lost in, in measuring what's really important or the thing that I want to escape or the thing that I want to be delivered into. And the Lord knows that the greatest thing that's happening in any of our lives as Christians right now in this room and right now in our lives is the work that he is doing to conform us into the image of Christ to make Jesus' priorities our priorities, to make Jesus' nature and ways our ways. And sometimes when we're a little bit younger, we can count riches in all of these different kinds of ways, and then it isn't until much later in life that we realize the thing that makes us the most rich and the most important thing that God did all through those years was he was conforming us 
into the image of Christ and preparing us for what comes uh, ahead and then giving us the privilege of representing Christ in this world. And so sometimes we say, all right, it's going to, God's up to something better, so it must mean I'm going to get a $2,000 check in the mail instead of $1,000, or I'm going to end up with a car that's only three years old instead of 30 years old, and that's always in the physical realm. Well, he can do that kind of thing, and he is going to take care of our daily needs, but he is, he is looking to do something, that better thing of conforming us into the image of Christ. If God makes us wait, it's only because he's up to something better, and time will reveal it. You say you've said that before in the book of Psalms. What do you want me to do? Some of the Psalms say the same thing, and I never tire of saying the same thing, as many of you know that have been here for a long time. These truths impact me uh, over and over and over again in a fresh way. And as I've said before, too, when you've got a memory as bad as mine, it's like I've just rediscovered it for the first time every time I hit it. I've experienced it fresh like it's brand new. It's fabulous. And... Uh, not so fabulous for you. Psalm 71 is a psalm for old age. We know that in verse 9, do not cast me off in the time of old age. Now, old age is a time where we, uh, and as we approach old age, it's a time where a person becomes uh, more and more aware of our vulnerability. Uh, We're aware that we no longer have the physical strength that we once had. Uh, We're aware that we no longer have, our mind is not as sharp as it once was. And the decline of these abilities, physical and mental abilities, really one of the things that happens in a person is you really do start to feel more and more vulnerable. And this is why God is so good to come to know the Lord earlier in life where he builds this history between us and him in life for that time so that we can know that, wow, what God has been in all my life and, and if he could get me through my youth or through my childhood or my teenage years or through my 20s, my 30s, my 40s, my 50s, then he can get me through my 70s or 80s and 90s, you know, or whatever. God forbid your hundreds, you know, so... Uh, but God numbers our days. And, um, but there is that thing where we do become conscious of our vulnerability and it produces that consciousness of how dependent we are upon the Lord and sometimes in a way that we, we don't really realize how dependent we are until uh, later on in life. Well, he speaks about his problems here in verse 1. He said, "'In you, O Lord, I put my trust.'" Let me never be put to shame. Deliver me in your righteousness and cause me to escape. Incline your ear to me and hear me. Be my strong refuge to which I may resort continually. You have given the commandment to save me. You are my rock and my fortress. And so he declares the Lord to be his strong refuge, verse 3. His rock, verse 3, my fortress, verse 3. When you're younger, you can be your own rock. Say, look at these abs. When you're older, you don't do abs because you don't care. Just enough to bowl. 
But you realize that I, I can't be these things that at least I thought I was in my youth. And so I need God to be these things uh, to me. And, of course, he's going to tell us a little bit later in verses 10 and 11 that the reason that he was so concerned and he needed the Lord to be these uh, kind of things in his life is that the ungodly were seeking to make a prey of him. They viewed him as old and defenseless and feeble, and he's vulnerable at his old age, and so they're going to make a, a criminal victim out of him. And so he cries out, Deliver me, O my God, out of the hand of the wicked, out of the hand of the unrighteous and cruel man. For you are my hope, O Lord God. For you are my trust from my youth. And this is one of the blessings of, of having a relationship with God from the youth, by, from youth. By you I have been uh, upheld from birth, and you are the, he who took me out of my mother's womb. My praise shall be continually uh, of you. And so he is calling upon God to be as faithful to him in his old age as he ever was and looking out from him from the point of birth all the way to old age. Again, we're quoting a little bit of Isaiah tonight, but for those of you who are a little bit older, in Psalm 46, verses 3 and 4, that's a great uh, scripture to make note of. And this, the psalmist, uh, the Lord speaks through uh, Isaiah, Listen to me, O house of Jacob, and all the remnant of the house of Israel, who have been upheld by me from birth, who have been carried from the womb, even to your old age I am he, and even to gray hairs I will carry you. I have made and I will bear, even I will carry and deliver you. Beautiful promise from the Lord for when the gray hair comes. And even when you got gray hair under that color. We're not saying anything. Only you and your hairdresser know. You know, Jagger's doing his hair. I think I've talked about this before. You can't have a face like that and have that beautiful brown hair that he has. There's no way. He looks like he's 200 years old. And I commend him for it. I commend him for it. And then you look, you know, you look and then you see that hair and you go, no, there's no way. Mm-mm. No. Verse 7, I have become a one, as a wonder to many, but you are my strong refuge. Let my mouth be filled with your praise and with your glory all the day. And so he expresses his commitment to the Lord in his old age. He said, do not cast me off in the time of old age. Do not forsake me when my strength fails, for my enemies speak against me, and those who lie in wait for my life take counsel together, saying, God has forsaken him. Pursue and take him, for there is none to deliver him. And that's one of the sad things, too, is that there's such a... An, a, in this culture, an increasing disrespect toward age. Older people are revered in many cultures in the world. This is a youth-oriented culture that we live in. That's one of the reasons it's in the mess that it's in. Uh, older people have learned a few things, and they're not always right, but they're generally right from life experience. And certainly when they have the hoary head, the gray hair, in the Lord. So 
uh, here he is, and he's, they're, they're wanting to take advantage of him again in this vulnerability. And so you see all these scams that they do in order to rip uh, older people off. We were just talking the other night. Someone was telling me about a scam. An older person was telling me about a scam where, you know, you get the telephone call and, and hi, Mom. You know, and the whole phone deal is, uh, you know, or Grandma. And then they don't know that it isn't one of their grandchildren, you know, and they need $2,000 sent to them here and this and the whole deal. And they just catch people where they're not as sharp as they might be earlier in life and, and, uh, and not fall prey to that kind of thing. But that's what goes on, and that's why we need the Lord in our youth and we need the Lord in our old age. Oh, God, do not be far from me. Oh, my God, make haste to help me. Let them be confounded and consumed who are adversaries of my life. Let them be covered with reproach and dishonor who seek my hurt. But I will hope continually and will praise you yet more and more. That's how we ought to grow old, is praising the Lord more and more. My mouth shall tell of your righteousness and your salvation all the days, for I do not know their limits I will go in the strength of the Lord God. I will make mention of your righteousness, of yours only. And so he uh, commits to not stopping to, to fail to speak of the Lord in his old age. And that's very, very important. We need, we need as he's talking about committing himself even in a greater measure. You know, it, the, no matter how old we get, we can commit ourselves even more deeply to the things of the Lord. If Christ is the standard, and He is, then there will always be room for growth and our growth in Christ's likeness until the day we leave this earth. So there should never be a pulling back from growing. It's a sad thing to see how many people stop growing in the Lord in their 20s, in their 30s, their 40s. There should just always be that continued growth that is, is going on, and then that commitment that my voice, and that's one of the great things about getting older is you realize how finite time, it, time is, how few, uh, comparatively few opportunities might be left to use this voice uh, to speak of the Lord, and it's always great to be around an older person who is always talking about the things of the Lord. And it's, it's so easy to just get old and cranky. Oh, they're just old and cranky. Don't, don't bother with them, you know. And you see an, an older saint grow older in the Lord and the grace and the beauty and the, and the speaking of the Lord is coming out of their life in even great measure. It is very, very attractive always, but very and especially attractive. And I would say especially influential in an older person. Sometimes you think, well, here I person feels like, especially again in this culture where there's such an emphasis on youth, you know, the older person, once you're above a certain age and who's going to listen to you. And, you know, there's a lot of that, that there's a lot of truth to that and all. And all. But I remember when I, but you, you just can't underestimate uh, how often an older person is being watched by a younger person, but will never know it. I remember when I was in junior high, what a hopeless case I was. <laughs> Man. And my brother, my twin brother, Gabe, the same way. I mean, we were just absolutely 
had a childhood that just prepared us for complete failure in life. You could not be more inappropriate in any environment than we were. I mean, just completely untrained like wild animals. Just the way it was. And I remember as a junior high boy, the first time I set eyes on Bill McDonald. Now with the Lord. Went to be with the Lord in his mid-80s. And wrote the Believer's Bible Commentary, lots of other books, I think 70-some books and all. And I saw him as a young man. And he was probably just 55 years old, but when you're in junior high and 55, you know, it's just like right on the edge of the grave, you know. <laughs> it's funny, you know, you look at, you see your elementary school teachers and you go, wow, they're just going to like die any minute. And then 50 years later, you're at a reunion. They look the same. They're dying their hair, though. But I remember Bill McDonald, and I saw him, and I was just transfixed by the Lord and his life. And I got invited. The Rose family were a part of the church that I was in at that time. And Mr. Rose, he... Uh, he would always host the lunch for the visiting speakers at the church on the Sunday. And Bill McDonald came and he was a visiting speaker. And Mr. Rose couldn't be at lunch. And he asked me to take his place at the table at their house hosting Bill McDonald for lunch. Oh, yeah, I'm up to that. <laughs> so I went. You don't say no to Mr. Rose. So I went there. I watched everything he did. I watched how he lifted a fork. I listened to every word that came out of his mouth. I mean, there was a hunger to see and to learn from someone solid and holy and beautiful in a way that I just couldn't understand at that point in my life. I'd never been exposed to that so close in that way. And there just it was a kindred spirit of some kind and all. But... It, I mean, it wouldn't be until decades later that I'd be able to let Bill know the impact that he had upon my life. And so you never sell it short. The Lord has a way of making us influential for his purposes all the way to the end. He said, Oh God, you have taught me from my youth, and to this day I declare your wondrous works. Now also, when I'm old and gray-headed... Oh, God, do not forsake me until I declare your strength to this generation, your power to everyone who is to come. Now, that's maturity. He looks at it, and here he's an older man, and he says, Lord, I commit myself to making you known to the generations that are behind me. And he commits himself to being even more influential for the kingdom of God, again, in his old age as even he was when he was younger. And he wanted the younger generation to learn from him his testimony to long years of faithfulness with the Lord. Sometimes you, uh, you, you have a funny thing in people that are getting older in our culture. You have some people who are getting older and they fight it tooth and nail. I'm not putting it down. But they, they want to be 20 years younger than their actual age in every way. 
And, and that's a, a dominant kind of thing that you see in the culture, especially in entertainment and these kind of prominent places. But there's also a tendency in older people to die way before they die. They'll start dying 20 years before they die. And so they give up on being an impact for the kingdom of God. Some of the men and women that God used in the Bible the most powerfully, He used them in their old age. Moses, 80 years old. Abraham, 100 years old. Sarah, 90 years old. I mean, they're just getting started. And God had built this foundation for decades to now, all right, we can get on with the program because if you hadn't had a foundation like this through all these decades, you couldn't handle what I'm going to put on your plate right now to accomplish for me. I think about people that start dying long before. I mean, they start the preparations for death way before they're going to die. And I'm not, I'm not making fun of it, but I do think that if that's a tendency, a personality tendency in any of our lives, we need to be aware of it and pull back. I think of Isaac, one of the patriarchs, uh, Isaac of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob fame. Isaac calls in uh, uh, Jacob and Esau into his room. I'm going to die and I want to give you the blessing, Esau. So go out and find some game and make the venison and the stew that I love so much and go out and then do the blessing. And Jacob does the old switcheroo and the blessing goes on Jacob instead of Esau and the whole thing. Well, he thinks he's on his deathbed. He's going to live another 43 years. He's going to live another 43 years and he thinks he's on his deathbed. God numbers our days. And we do have to be careful. And the psalmist was careful here. He says, until I go to be with you, I want to be making an impact for you and the generations that are following me. Also, your righteousness, O God, is very high. You have done great things, O God. Who is like you? You have shown me great and severe troubles. Shall... uh, You who have shown me great and severe troubles shall revive me again and bring me up again from the depths of the earth. You shall increase my greatness and comfort on every side. And so he remembers this long history that he has with God. Also with the lute I will praise you and and for your faithfulness, O my God. To you I will sing with the harp, O Holy One of Israel. My lips shall greatly rejoice when I sing to you, and my soul which you have redeemed. My tongue also shall talk of your righteousness all the day long, for they are confounded and are brought to shame who seek my hurt. And so we see this commitment again, the singing, 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 my lips, my tongue, Again, this refusal to go out quietly in old age, but to use that season in life to speak of the things of the Lord. And sometimes it's when things are said by an older person in the, in the body of Christ. I mean, we, we like all the hipness and all the thing and the tattoo and the whole, whole, everything going on today and everything. There's something about an old saint that's walked the talk for all those decades And he opens up his mouth or her mouth and begins to talk about the faithfulness of God, the goodness of God, the wisdom of God. And it gets real quiet 
because everybody realizes in the room that this person has tested the promises of God like nobody else in this room, and they're telling us something valuable about God and telling us that what is their testimony at 70, 80, 90 years old will one day be our testimony as well as we continue in with the things of the Lord. There is an authority that comes with old age in the Lord that is powerful. And the psalm is a beautiful psalm that helps bring that out. In Psalm 72, we notice that it's a psalm of Solomon. So it's just one of two psalms that were written by Solomon. The other psalm was Psalm 127. The psalm is clearly messianic. Solomon is writing this psalm, surely asking for God's blessing upon his reign as the third king of Israel after Saul, after David, and Solomon followed his father David as the third king of Israel. But what he describes in here is so magnificent in this psalm that clearly he goes beyond by the Spirit of God describing his own reign and the desires for his own reign to a description of another son of David. Jesus is the son of David concerning a description of the Messiah, Jesus' millennial reign, his thousand-year reign. And so it's got kind of a near and a far fulfillment related to it. But clearly this psalm can't be true of anyone other than Christ, than uh, of Jesus himself. And so Psalm 72 is this beautiful description of this beautiful time uh, in human history that we'll, we know as the millennial uh, reign or the millennial kingdom or the thousand-year reign of Christ. So we're waiting for the rapture of the church. Following the rapture of the church, there'll be a seven-year tribulation period. We'll be in heaven with the Lord as Christians during that time. At the end of that seven-year period, Jesus returns with us uh, to the Mount of Olives by way of the Valley of Megiddo at his second coming and then to Jerusalem. He sets foot on the Mount of Olives and establishes a thousand-year reign in uh, Jerusalem uh, over the world. And then following that thousand years, ultimately everything gives way to a new heaven and a new earth. So that helps you, for those of you who are new to all of this, helps you understand where all of this fits into uh, the big picture. And so he says, Give the king your judgments, O God, and your righteousness to the king's son. And so God's uh, Jesus' millennial reign is going to be marked by righteousness and by justice. He will judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. The mountains shall bring peace to the people and the little hills by righteousness. And he will bring justice to the poor of the people. He will save the children of the needy and he will break in pieces the oppressor. And so this, remember this reign of Christ is going to occur immediately after the, literally the horror of the great tribulation period. So imagine how hungry the world is going to be at that point for a righteous, holy, uh, uh, just-filled uh, reign after the, the uh, terror of, of all of that. And so it begins with this God's heart being expressed for the poor and for the powerless. And during the millennial reign, nobody will take advantage of the poor 
or the powerless, those who oppress the poor, God says in verse 4, will be broken uh, into pieces. God will judge them, uh, those that exploit uh, the poor. So that kind of thing isn't going to be allowed. You think about how the poor are taken advantage of today. Uh, I remember I was, one time I was down in Mexico in Baja. I was visiting a missionary. And uh, someone was talking about, you know, the company stores. I didn't know. Sometimes I've heard songs or stories about the company stores. And, um, but I think that's kind of gone by the wayside in the United States, but it exists in other parts of the world where you take these people and you hire them and you pay them such a meager wage uh, that they can't live off of it. So they never get enough money to leave your employment and go someplace else. They're indebted to you. And, and because they don't make enough, they have to go to the company store in order to charge for the food that they need for them and their family to live on. And then their tab gets so great. And then the owner of, you know, the agribusiness or whatever it might be or the factory knows, I've got this person for life. They can never get away from me. And that kind of oppression goes on where people are just things to use to enrich myself rather than human beings created in the image of God. There'll be none of that in the thousand-year reign of Christ. And they shall fear you as long as the sun and the moon endure throughout all generations. He shall come down like rain upon the grass before mowing, like showers that water the earth. In his days the righteous shall flourish an abundance of peace until the moon is no more. And so that rain will be characterized by prosperity. It will be characterized by peace. It's beautiful. We live in an agricultural area, so I like these ag references here. And the reign of Christ will be as refreshing to everyone as the rain that's being waited for refreshes the earth when it comes. Uh, we got to get all the, all the crops in, and then the rain can come, right? The rain can come when it wants. But I, I have a heart for all of that. want to get those crops in everywhere and have a complete harvest. But when that rain comes, it's nice for it to come. It's a season now for the earth to be refreshed, and Jesus is going to bring that kind of refreshment through His rain uh, to the people of the world. He shall have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Those who dwell in the wilderness will bow before Him, so His reign is going to be a universal reign. talks about those who dwell in the wilderness bowing before Him. speaks of nomadic tribes. And there are a lot of nomadic tribes in the world today. You go to Israel today and you get to see the Bedouin who move around in their tents and all of these different things. They're very frugal people and they know how to make money out of nothing just about, you know. So you see them out in their tents with their goats and these goatskin tents and the whole deal and all and everybody's just... It's, boy, you, nobody wants to live that kind of life that's on the bus when we see them. And then you see a TV, a satellite antenna coming up out of the tent, big screen TV inside or something. You know. Sometimes you see a Mercedes parked outside of a tent. And uh, so uh, the, these tribes that make up these pockets of nations and his enemies will lick, uh, and his enemies will lick the dust. In other words, all that oppose the Lord will suffer 
humiliating defeat during that reign. The kings of Tarshish, Tarshish speaks uh, perhaps of Spain and Europe and of the Isles. They're going to bring presents to the Lord in uh, Jerusalem. The kings of Sheba, speaking of Saudi Arabia, Arabia, Seba, which speaks of Upper Egypt, will offer gifts. Yes, all kings will bow down before him. All nations will serve him. So there'll be one king over the whole earth, a righteous king, King Jesus. For he will deliver the needy when he cries, the poor also in him who has no helper. He will spare the poor and the needy. He will save the souls of the needy. He will redeem their life from oppression and violence. And precious will be their blood in his sight. And the blood, the life is in the blood. Blood represents life. So it's God's way of saying that the life of the poor and the, the life of the needy uh, are precious in his sight. And so the reign of Christ is going to be a very, very compassionate reign. He will, he shall live, and he shall live, and the gold of Sheba, again Saudi Arabia, will be given to him. So you've got gold, prayer will, also will be made for him continually, and daily he shall be praised. And so here's three ways in which worship is going to be directed toward the Lord. So on Sunday mornings, for instance, when uh, we receive the offering, and, uh, and the, uh, one of the pastors will come out and pray related to the offering. And the whole idea, the reason that that's a part of our worship service, and we don't just... Uh, I know that some churches, they put boxes in the back and say, hey, if you want to give, uh, you can. And there's some boxes back there, and they're just low-key in the whole thing. Let everybody be co- thoroughly convinced in their own mind. But uh, it is a privilege to worship the Lord in every way that He's given us to worship Him. To worship Him in song. To worship Him in prayer. But also to worship Him in giving. Would it be a terrible, sad, terrible thing if God said, you can't give to me. You cannot express your heart of love toward me in giving anything to me. No material things. I don't want a cent of it. I don't want a goal. I don't want anything from you. You cannot express that part of your life toward me. You've got to spend every single penny on your crummy little self. Now, God would never say that like that. That's what, how I would feel about it. You mean, I, this, I can't, you know, it's a privilege to be able to give to the Lord. I'm not priming you for an offering either, by the way. But it, it just speaks of uh, the, the whole world will look for ways to bless the Lord because of how privileged they feel that He is their King and, and to be able to live life under His headship. And, of course, we are a partaker of that long before uh, the millennial reign. We're enjoying that as Christians tonight. There will be an abundance of grain on the earth on the top of the mountains. Now, who, pant, who plants wheat on the mountaintops? Nobody that doesn't want to waste seed. But in the, in the thousand-year reign of Christ, agriculture will be expanded into areas where 
uh, uh, that we've never known it uh, before. So there's going to be plenty of food. Its fruit shall wave like Lebanon, and uh, those of the city shall flourish like grass uh, of the earth. And so the cities will be blessed as well as the agricultural areas. His name shall endure forever. His name shall continue as long as the sun, and men shall be blessed in him. All nations shall call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel, who only does wondrous things. And blessed be his glorious name forever. And let the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. And so Solomon, as he's thinking about this king that is going to follow him someday, and and he's writing, he just begins to break out in praise that God would send so wonderful a king into human history. And he closes this by saying, the prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. Now, we happen to know as we read the uh, book of Psalms that there's going to be a lot more uh, Psalms of David and the rest of the book. So what does he mean that the uh, prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended? It, as you see in most of your Bibles, Psalm 73 begins what is known as the, the third book of the Psalms. The Psalms are broken up into five books. And so that uh, ends here formally the uh, collection of Psalms that made up the second, uh, second book. Psalm 73 Truly, God is good to Israel, to such as are pure in heart. And so here is a psalm about a righteous man that was almost stumbled in his faith because of the prosperity of the wicked in the world. And so we notice what he knew was true about God. He said, truly, God is good to Israel. I like how the Amplified Bible puts that. It translates it, only good is God to Israel. And I think that that's very, very helpful and, and uh, very good because that's what the psalmist is saying here. Only good is God. And that's what the psalmist knew to be true of God. And that's an important thing for everyone to know about God. Only good is God. He is, it, it is, is incapable of being or doing anything other than good. So this is where it begins. This is where he's settled. This is what he knows about God to be true about God. Only good is God. And then something arises and really stumbles him in his confidence in the fact that only good is God. Something happens that stumbles him in his confidence in the goodness and in the wisdom of God. And the thing that stumbled him was the prosperity of the wicked. He says, But as for me, my feet almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. So here he is. He's just a Christian walking through life, loves God, walking with God and all. And he looks over just like we do in life. And he looks over and he looks at the wicked and he looks at them prospering. And he sees sometimes the hard lot that God's people have in this fallen world so often in comparison to how easy the wicked have it in the fallenness of this world. It doesn't seem right to him. Sometimes it doesn't seem right to us. I mean, we just think if God is good, then this is how it works. 
that every single time in every circumstance in life, God will take and hammer the wicked. And He will chasten them. He will openly judge them. He will make an open example of them. And that God will always bless and prosper materially and otherwise the righteous. That if I was God, that's the lesson that I would send out every single day from my throne. That's how it ought to be. And so often we think that way. And then we look around the world that we live in. And we see the houses and the homes of the rich and the famous. And we see the power brokers. And we see the influential. And we see the famous. And we see the old money. And we see the new money. And so often we look and behind all of it is wickedness, ungodliness, rebellion against God. And we say, that just doesn't add up. How, how come it isn't the other way around? And that's that's what he is, is, is faced with, and it creates real confusion for him in his faith, and he really struggles with it. Why is it that so often the wicked prosper and the godly struggle when it should be the other way around? And then he lets us in on another little secret, though. It wasn't just the injustice of it, but he tells us in verse 3 that secretly he was envious of the wicked. When I see how hard I have to work to put food on the table because I'm righteous in an industry that no longer values righteousness, and I see the bonuses that these people who are as corrupt and underhanded and no character and liars get to take home at the end of the year compared to what I take home. And he said, I look at this and it made me envious of all of the things that I have and I'm being deprived of because of my righteousness and walking with the Lord. And I tell you, he's just being honest with God. And, and so here he is, he's walking with God, he's obeying God, he's going to church, looks around at the lifestyle of the wicked, and in his heart he thinks, I'd like a little more of that. I like a house like that. I like a car like that. I like that many people to follow me on Twitter. <laughs> and then he describes there the, his description of the wicked. And, uh, and when you read this description, obviously he had studied the wicked with great care. I mean, he's been thinking this over for a long time. These are the things that rose up in his mind and challenged the goodness and the fairness of God in his mind. He said concerning the wicked, for there are no pangs in their death, but their strength is firm. They die strong. They don't die painful deaths. They don't die of starvation. They don't die of diseases that they wouldn't get because of proper nourishment, like so often the righteous have through history. And so he says they, they die, they seem to enjoy good health all the way to the end, and then they die in that condition. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like other men. They, they, in terms of their uh, troubles, they seem to have it easy. 
And therefore, pride serves as their necklace. And, and so they, he says, they wear pride as a necklace. They're proud of their pride. They're proud of their arrogance and, and, their, and their self-centeredness and, and their sense of self-importance. And, and they just wear it like this. And there doesn't seem to be any kind of repercussion for it. They get famous being that kind of a person. Violence covers them like a garment. And so they engage in violence and, and they advance their uh, their wealth and all through violence. They get away with it, become fabulously wealthy and powerful. We think of the drug lords in this vein and lots of gangs and, and lots of things, even, uh, you know, all around the world, dictators that take over countries by violence and, and, uh, and their use of violence to, uh, to gain wealth and to hold on to it. Their eyes bulge with abundance they have more than heart could wish. And so this is talking about the fact that they're well-fed. In, in the ancient world, to, have, to, be, to, uh, to be heavy enough that your face got heavy enough that your eyes bulged, that was a luxury. Very f- few people had access or the money to buy the amount of food that would allow that to happen. So we think that uh, putting on weight like that is kind of a curse in this culture. And we pay all kinds of money to go on diets and all those kind of things. In the ancient world, that was a mark of tremendous prosperity to be able to eat enough to actually become uh, overweight uh, through the food. They scoff and they speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue walks through the earth. And so concerning their speech, again, their sense of self-importance. So the psalmist is saying, not only do we have to watch their lives, but we've got to listen to everything that they're saying. And, and, and so there's no part of the world, he says, that isn't filled with their lies and with their propaganda, and they're getting away with it. And therefore, his people return here. The waters, and it refers to his people, referring to the people that became kind of groupies or followers or sycophants of, of these wicked people. Therefore, his people return here, and waters of a full cup are drained by them. In other words, they, the psalmist is saying, the wicked in the world, you would think that the whole world would shun them. you think the whole world would hate them for the kind of people that they are. But he says the world's gotten so crazy, even back in that time, gotten so crazy that they become heroes to people because of how many people they've killed or how much money they've made victimizing other people, this kind of stuff. We see the same kind of thing uh, today. I mean, how many kids want to grow up to become gangsters today as opposed to growing up and becoming pastors? If you put those on two sides of the scale in the United States of America, there is not, you're, there's not even a race on that. But that's, that's the culture. And we see and deal with the same things that the psalmist did uh, so many years ago. And so they say, how does God know and is there knowledge in the Most High? They blaspheme God, which is the ultimate expression of, you know, insanity of of self-importance when I begin to think I'm more important than God. Behold, these are the ungodly who are always at ease. They increase in riches. He said, surely I have cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocence 
For all day long I have been plagued and chastened every morning. And so he looks at it and he says, basically, God, this is what I'm saying. My life is hard because I'm being faithful to you. Look at how the material blessings and and fame of those that oppose you. And I was raised all of my life being told, God, that crime doesn't pay. But excuse me, it looks like it does. So this guy, I mean, he's in a, he's in a place. And usually when you have thoughts like this, you don't write them in a psalm. You don't tell anybody. And that's the point that he makes here. He said, for if I had, if I had said, I will speak thus, he said, if I had verbalized what I was feeling inside based on what I was seeing around me, he said, behold, I would have been untrue to the generation of your children. All this is in my heart, God, but I didn't speak it out because I didn't want to stumble your people with my doubts. But he had doubts. And he said, when I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me. Why should those who oppose and hate God be better off in this world than those who love and obey him? And then his crisis is resolved in verse 17. This was his whole perspective, he said, until I went in to the sanctuary of God. He went to church. And in going to church and coming under the influence of God and the influence of God's Word, he, re- he had an eternal perspective returned to his life, <clears throat> excuse me, and a true perspective that comes with being among God's people. And he said, when I went into your sanctuary, then I understood their end. He said, now I began to look at things in the light of eternity and in the light of the temporal. And, and that's, that's what happens when we come together for church. The Bible, the, we, the, one, in the passages in the Bible talk about the Lord being the lifter of our heads. He lifts our heads every time we go to church. He lifts our heads off of the immediate circumstances of our life, the confusion of life in this world, and He lifts our eyes off of that onto Him, and everything changes. Everything changes with that. And so here he comes in the church, and now he's starting to see things clearly. And then he begins to assess the wicked, not on the basis of their current prosperity, but on the basis of their end. He said, surely you have set them in slippery places, and you cast them down to destruction. That's what their future has for them. Oh, how they are brought to desolation as in a moment, and and they are, and they are utterly consumed with tears. And so one day all the popularity that they have with people, that's going to be replaced with a terror that comes with having lived uh, a life in opposition uh, to God and Christless. As a dream when one awakes, so, Lord, when you awake, you shall despise their image. And so when a dream ends and a person wakes up, uh, just like when that happens, we wake up and the dream is over. Uh, God declares that one day He's going to bring an end to this dream of theirs and this nightmare of what they've made the world into through their, their wickedness. He'll bring an end uh, uh, to that. 
And he said, So, Lord, when you awake, you shall despise their image. And thus my heart was grieved, and I was vexed in my mind. I was so foolish and ignorant, I was like a beast before you. So now he's upset with himself that he ever doubted God. Never do that, you know. This is a wonderful thing because when we go to the Bible or when we go to church or we, we, we enter into a conversation where someone is used by God to return us to an eternal perspective, and uh, it, that's a miracle of God that he is doing. That's, that's a good shepherd looking out for our lives. And so he was honest about everything that he was feeling and everything that he was going through. And then afterward, when God corrects him, then he's kind of upset with himself for ever thinking those things, for ever doubting God. And again, he's just being honest. He said, I, I wasn't acting like a child of God. I was like an animal in my assessment of, of things. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. And, and you hold me by my right hand. You will guide me by your counsel and afterwards receive me up into heaven. You, you, you. That, that's where he gets a grasp on what makes a person truly rich in this world. And that is to know God and to have a relationship with God. And so he looks and he sees all of these things that the wicked have and then his mind has been returned to the blessing of, yeah, but if you have all of those things at that price, you have it because you don't have God. And he says, if I'm forced to choose between the two, I'll take you. God is the reason that we're rich. God makes us rich in life. And so here again is that return of perspective that the Lord is the reward of this Christian life. You say, well, I never made this amount of money. I never was famous. I never was this. I never... It doesn't matter. God is the reward of this Christian life. I am continually with you. I'm rich because of your presence. You hold me by my right hand. That is, you take care of me. I'm rich because you guide me with your counsel. I get to live under the direction of your word. And then after all of this, you receive me into glory, as the old saying goes, and all of this in heaven too. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is none upon earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. So this is a full, you know, repentance of his earlier view on things. He doubly commits himself to God, really is more thankful for who he is and what he has in God than even before his doubting God works all two things together for good, doesn't He? For indeed, those who are far from you shall perish. You have destroyed all those who desert you for harlotry, but it is good for me to draw near to God. That's all He says. All that stuff over there I thought was so great, I was envious. He put it all. I don't care about any of that. It is good for me to draw near to God. That's what makes me rich. I have put my trust in the Lord God, that I may declare all of your works. And so he says, I'm so glad I didn't, you know, advertise my doubts concerning you. 
and, uh, and I commit myself to speaking of your greatness and serving you and declaring all of your goodness now for the rest of my life. Jesus never envied the wicked. on any level. He didn't envy their life. He didn't envy their prosperity. He didn't envy their eternity. Jesus said, What shall it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? This life is so very Short, and eternity is such a long, long time. It is worth every sacrifice we have to make to be faithful to God's calling upon our lives in this life to secure the glorious reward of the eternity that has been purchased for us in Christ. Jesus never envied the wicked or their prosperity, and neither should we. Let's stand together and we'll pray tonight. Father, thank you for these psalms tonight. Thank you for this broad cross-section of things that we have enjoyed looking at this evening and allowing you to rearrange our hearts and our minds, our priorities, our perspective through all of it. We thank you for that. Lord, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the single great example that you have given us in life to look at and to emulate and the will and the power of the Holy Spirit. We thank you for the richness of the life of Christ-likeness that you have brought us into, Lord. And we thank you for the richness of the life of Christ-likeness that you are working mightily to deliver us into today but we don't recognize that that's what you're doing at the moment. And we thank you, Lord, for your determination to produce within us the freedom and the joy and the life and the life more abundantly that is found in becoming more and more like him. We thank you for our hero, our Savior tonight, Lord how we love him, how thankful we are, Lord, to be being conformed into his image. Continue to do it. We commit this next week to you, Lord, and we ask that you would make it a great work of your blessing and your keeping in each one of our lives. Help us to recognize every opportunity to become more like Christ in the course of this week and produce it within us, we pray. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.